If you join me in Bible study tonight, please open up to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah means the Lord exalts. We are in chapter 5, verse 19. We are in the section of Jeremiah where God is pleading with Israel through the prophet, would you please repent? If you don't repent, I'm going to have to judge you. I'm going to have to do what I said I was going to do. I don't have any options because God cannot lie. God cannot change his mind. So when God says, if you do this, I'm going to send you into captivity. What must God do when they do it? Must send them into captivity. But if they will repent, then that would defer the judgment, right? Because they're once more being obedient and they will be entitled to the blessings. But what happens when they thumb their nose at God and say, you can't tell us what to do? It sounds like today, you know, the scripture says they were running to find new ways to commit evil. In the news this morning, I almost lost my breakfast. There was a man on there saying that he wanted a uterus transplant so he could be the first man to abort a baby. He just couldn't wait to abort a baby. That's what you call running to sin. He needs a bullet transplant. Oh, but let's, let's get on with, with uh, verse 19. Remember, verse 18 said, Nevertheless, I won't make a complete end of you, because not only did God promise to send them into captivity, he promised to bring them out of captivity when they did what? What's that key word? When they repent. So verse 19 says, And it will be when you say, quote, why does the Lord our God do all these things to us? End quote. I'm speechless. Think back to the situation in Jerusalem and Judah at this point in time. They have cut crushes in the walls of the temple and put up idols. They gather in the courtyards, turn their backs to God, and bow to worship the rising sun. They're slaughtering babies and sacrificing them to Moloch. And yet they say, what did we do? So then you shall answer them. Just as you have forsaken me and served other gods in your land. So you shall serve aliens in a land that is not yours. And please, no jokes about, yes, there really are aliens out there. See, it's right here in the Bible. That's not what this word is. What do you think this word is, this word alien? Yes, it is Zarim, Z-A-R-I-M. It's talking about somebody from another nation, another country, somebody outside of Judah and Israel. Or another people group. So just as you have forsaken me. How does God define you have forsaken me? Keep a finger here. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 3. Disobeying his commandments has forsaken him. Yes, yeah, so let's go to Deuteronomy 8. We'll just do the short version. Since you've already given me the answer. Let's just put a scripture with it. Deuteronomy 8 verse 1 to start with says every commandment but that's not literally what it says in Hebrew yes ma'am you said Deuteronomy 
And then I said, since he gave me the answer, we'll just go to Deuteronomy 8 and do the short version. <laughs> so Deuteronomy 8, verse 1, literally says all of the commandment, referring back to chapter 6, verse 1, which says all of God's commandments together, the commandments, statutes, and judgments, in his view, is a unity. It's not a menu, pick and choose. Every command which I command you today, you must be careful to observe. That, the word that means, here's what happens when you do. That you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land in which the Lord swore to your fathers. So what is the blessing for obedience? To dwell in the land, the land of milk and honey, the land of plenty. To be blessed by God in every direction. But verse 11 says, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God. To forget the Lord your God is to forsake the Lord your God. By not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today. Okay, so let us go back again to Jeremiah 5.19. Just as you have forsaken me, we're in the middle of the verse, and served foreign gods in your land. Why does he call them foreign gods? Foreigners worship them. Yep, they're the gods of foreign nations that they have brought into Israel so that they could worship them too. It says, so you shall serve aliens in a land that is not yours, meaning you're going to go into captivity just as I promised in Deuteronomy 28. Go back to Deuteronomy 28, verse 36. God was very specific before they ever crossed the Jordan River into the promised land. Before they ever had an earthly king, they were warned in Deuteronomy 28, verse 36, which says, The Lord will bring you and the king whom you set over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone. And there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone means because this is what you chose. You don't want to worship God, he says. So you don't want to be in my land. This is my land. This is the land I bless. You want to worship those gods? Go to where they are. How much blessing will those gods do? None. Zip zero. But I want you to put in your notes, this word is zarim. Z-A-R-I-M. It is not ger. We often talk about the difference between ger and goy. This is an entirely different word, zarim. And it just means foreigners. People in another land. Verse 20, declare this in the house of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah, saying. The most important word in this to me is saying. What does the word saying mean? What follows is a quote from the lips of God. So he says, don't change a word of it. Tell him just this. Verse 21, hear this now. Oh, foolish people. What is a fool? One who says, there is no God. Hear this now, oh, foolish people, without understanding. What do they not understand? They don't understand the blessing of serving the true and living God. They don't understand how superior he is to a rock or a stone or a piece of wood or a piece of metal. What's the difference between a rock and a stone? How big it is, right? 
making a really great big idol, does that do anything? No, it just takes a lot more effort. Oh, foolish people, without understanding, who have eyes and see not, and who have ears and hear not, why do they not see? And why do they not hear? Because yeah, but he's talking about the people. Oh, the people. The people. Yeah, it's okay. The people, they have eyes, but they don't see because they choose not to see. They choose to see the idol as being superior to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Is that why he calls them foolish? Mm -hmm. That they prefer a pagan idol to the true and living God? What has the Lord our God done for these people? Everything. Everything. Created the heavens and the earth. Made all this beautiful liver, um, rivers, lakes, streams, forests, mountains, all this beautiful geography that we see. Put all this food in the land before them. Brought them out of Egypt. Took them through the Red Sea. Delivered them from Pharaoh's army. Fed them in the wilderness with manna from heaven and water from a rock. Destroyed the mighty nations that were before them. And yet they prefer to say, forget him. I want to worship this little piece of gold over here. Or silver or wood or whatever the idol happens to be. Even the fish that keeps falling over. And they say, this is greater than our God. He says, you have eyes, but you don't see. You have ears and you don't hear. Go to the book of Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, verse 15. Matthew chapter 13, verse 15. And we may as well start in 14 for context. And in them... The prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. Who does he mean by them? Talking about the scribes and the Pharisees, those that refuse to hear the message. Messiah is in their midst preaching the gospel message, healing the sick, performing great miracles, and they refuse to see it. Which says, hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Meaning what? They don't want to hear from God. They don't want to know what God has to say. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes, they have closed. It's intentional. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. In other words, they're afraid that if they hear the message of the Lord, they're going to have to repent. They're going to have to stop sinning, and they don't want to. Lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. President Biden just met with President Herzog of Israel. You've probably all seen the video. Biden sitting there with his head down, looking at the floor, mumbling incoherently. As Herzog is going, what in the world's going on? But Biden then, he finally did agree he's going to let Netanyahu come over to see him, but only so that he can tell Netanyahu that Israel cannot reform their judiciary because it might stop free abortions and the 
homosexual agenda, etc. And he says they can't stop that. That's we mandate the world do that. It just irritates me. Let's go to the book of Acts. Has anybody noticed any storms lately? Acts 28. God has a way of expressing his displeasure. Did you see the latest prophecy update today on Rumble? The swarms of locusts going into Utah today were so thick that you could see them on the weather radar. Where's there anything from the Utah? I don't know, but there won't be much left when they're done. That's right. So Acts chapter 28, start in verse 23. So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging. Who's the he? Paul. To whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Yeshua from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. Why didn't he use the New Testament? (laughs) Hadn't been written yet. Right. But the law and the prophets teach of whom? Yeshua. And that's what he used to explain from morning till evening. And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. So when they did not agree amongst themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Lest they should understand with their hearts in turn so that I should heal them. Wayne, you just read the same words from three different places. Yes, it shows that the message has not changed. If you would add these two verses in your... In your narration, Second Corinthians chapter three, verse fourteen and fifteen. Mm-hmm. This is Paul speaking. Mm-hmm. And or is it would it be earlier or later than Acts twenty-eight? Earlier, I'm sure. He, uh, so let's go to Second Corinthians. What he's while you're finding it. Chapter three, I'm there. He's referring to the fact that from the time that Moses trans transcribed. Deuteronomy, the Torah, until his day. There's a veil over their faces. When the, when the scriptures read, they simply, just like they did when Moses came down the mountain with this shining, they had to cover his face. Yep. They couldn't bear to look at the light, just like we can't bear to look in the sun. Yep. But read those two verses aloud, so, if you don't mind. 2 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 12, right? No, I wanted to go 14, 15, but you can go where you want to. Okay, starting in verse 12, because that's about the veil. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness as speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Messiah. 
But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. So why is there a veil? They can't stand the light. Because they can't stand light, meaning they make a choice. They do not want to see. And the veil really is their own construct. Yep. And now... I thought that was great. Yep, that is great. Let's go to Romans... Not great in the fact that it happens, but yeah, the, the point's good. Yeah. Telling them, listen, when you turn to Messiah, the veil will be lifted. Yeah. Remember, Paul, when he first met the Lord, had slight scales on his eyes, and that finally they fell away. And remember what caused and he could the see. Yeah. The, the light. Yep. Romans chapter eleven, starting in verse seven. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it. Whoops, you're not there yet. Romans 11, sorry, verse 7. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Doesn't mean all of Israel has been blinded. It means part of Israel chooses to see they're the ones that are electing God's eyes because they have come to God by faith through Messiah. But the rest were blinded, just as it is written. God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. But why did God give them that spirit of stupor? Because they chose not to see. They don't want to see. And that's the point that's hard to get across to people sometimes who weep over their loved ones who just will not open their hearts. God doesn't make anyone believe. You can share the gospel, you can plead with people, but you cannot make them believe if they don't want to. Isaiah. Ah, we've looked enough at Isaiah. Back to Jeremiah. Yeah, we'll beat Isaiah many more times tonight. Uh, so verse 21 of Jeremiah 5 is that the people are foolish because they have the ability to see and they choose not to. They choose not to because as it says in the book of John, their deeds are evil so they don't want them exposed in the light. They want to walk in darkness. It sounds kind of but, like our Congress, if you listen to some of the stuff, only a fool could believe what they're saying. They're not fools. They're saying these awful things because that's covering the light. They yep. just want darkness. And, I mean, that's, not, that's what the whole book That's Romans. just the world we live in today. That's the book of Jeremiah. That's the book of Romans. It's almost the New Testament. It's men choose darkness because their deeds are evil. Yep. So, what's that? I said it's 2023. Yeah. So, verse 22. Do you not fear me, says the Lord? That's the problem. That's the problem, is they do not fear the Lord. What did God say the wages of sin is? death. How long did he say the eternal lake of fire burns? Eternally. Eternally. 
So how can people walk in the sins of this world and not understand that these things are going to come to pass? It's because they do not fear the Lord. They don't believe the Lord. They don't believe that what God said he will do. They sold out for fire insurance. Yeah. Do you not fear me, says the Lord? Will you not tremble at my presence? Come judgment day, do you think people are going to be shaking in their boots? Yeah, but notice, who have placed the sand as the bound of the sea? For more than a hundred years now, the scientists and the government has been screaming that if we don't get global warming in check, the polar ice caps are going to melt and the oceans are going to come into Nevada. But you know what? The bounds of the sea is where they've always been. It's where God put them. And it says God put the limit to where the oceans can come, and that's their limit. How many of you have been to California, to Los Angeles, and walked the beach? That was the beach in 1920. It was the beach in 1820. It hasn't changed. How? Why? The rains fall, the rivers flow into the ocean. Why doesn't it fill up and cover the earth? Because God said, no. Nature obeys God. That's why we look out there and see the storms. We know who's mad. But we have placed the sand as the bound of the sea. By a perpetual decree. What does that mean? A perpetual decree. It ain't going to change. It goes on and on. And we have the physical proof that God's word does not change. That it cannot pass beyond it. It's a good thing. There was a time that it did. Before God said, these are your limits. And he put a rainbow in the sky to say, never again will all the earth be flooded. And he told the oceans and the seas, now you stay put. And they have stayed put. And though its waves toss to and fro... Have you seen the waves come crashing into the beach? They want to come on up. They want to cover Los Angeles. I kind of wish they would sometimes, but they don't. Because God said no. Yet they cannot prevail. Those waves cannot breach the, the word of God. The limits he set. Right? When the Lord said be still, the Sea of Galilee went quiet. It says, though they roar, the oceans roar, those waves come rolling in, yet they cannot pass over it. So how can we not fear the Lord? Go to Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. Yep, Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. Have you found it? And now Israel. Are you part of Israel? If you're saved by faith, you're grafted in, you're part of the commonwealth. What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? To walk in all his ways and to love him. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, 
and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. That is man's all. We read that in Ecclesiastes 12. Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon, so look right after Proverbs. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. What's that word there for matter? The situation. It's devar, which means the word. As in the word of God. This sums it all up. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For, what does that word for mean? Because God will bring every work into judgment including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Which means every day we should think, I'm going to have to stand in judgment for what I'm about to do. Should I do right or should I do wrong? Should I keep God's commandments or should I break them? Because one day I'm going to stand before God and be judged. And it doesn't say, I'm going to judge each person, does it? It says, for God will bring every work into judgment. It means everything we do. That probably says 2 Corinthians. But I don't care. I'm going to go on anyway. Let's go back to... To Jeremiah. God bless you. Chapter 5. There's a word in verse 22 that I want us to look at. It is the word perpetual. I ask, what does that word mean? It's not the way the word is generally translated, but the word is Olam. The word Olam means forever. So this word perpetual means forever. Now there are a lot of theologians that tell me, Wayne, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Because you look at the Bible starting with the Old Testament, then the New. We should look at the New Testament first and the Old. And then you'd realize that since God's commandments have been abolished, that the word Olam didn't mean forever. It just meant for a little while. And in fact, if you look at Strong's Concordance, because of that, they put in there, oh, this can just mean a while. Well, let's look at the scripture and see if that is so. Let's start in Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. Verse 12. And God said, don't you like verses that start that way? Mm-hmm. Let's hear the word of the Lord. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant, 
which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. That word perpetual is Olam. It is forever. I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So God said the sign of the rainbow is here forever. And he said that how many thousands of years ago? How many of you have seen a rainbow? God's word has not failed. The rainbow, he put it in the sky, and it is still there. That's what Olam is. Let's look at also the same chapter, verse 16. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant. That's again the word Olam. is a covenant forever between God and every living creature of all flesh that's on the earth. So look at Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13, verse 15. This is the promise God made to Abraham. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. See that word forever? That is Olam. I was just listening to a preacher on YouTube this week saying, You've got to understand, people, there's not a single word in the Bible that's literal. It's all just allegories. So, where you read, God gave the land to you and your descendants forever, he didn't mean to Abraham and Abraham's descendants. He really meant to the church. So you just have to understand, it was an allegory. You're looking at me like, that's stupid. And I agree with you. So let's go on to chapter 17. God brought Israel back to the very same land after almost 2,000 years. Why? Because he said forever. And what does forever mean? Forever. Genesis chapter 17, verses 7 to 8. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant. That word everlasting is Olam. The covenant that the church says has been abolished. God said was forever. The same God who in Psalm 89 verse 34 said my covenant I will not break. Nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Are they fearing God? Are they believing the words that come out of God's mouth? Verse 8. Also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. That word everlasting is olam, forever. Whenever you hear a preacher say, replacement theology, then run. Because replacement theology means God has cast off Israel. No more Israel. God said, I will be their God forever. If God is not the God of Israel anymore, then God lied. Does God lie? No. 
God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Go to Genesis 21. This is the last one on this particular subpoint because it's the one that drives it home for me. So even though I'll give you a couple more verses, this one just drove it home for me. Genesis chapter 21, verse 33. Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there called on the name of the Lord the everlasting God. That word everlasting is Olam. Is he the God for a while? No. Or is he God forever? So what does the word Olam mean? Forever. So where the Strong's Concordance says, well, it just means a long duration. I say, but what does the Bible say? Let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 5. I got a question. Yes, what's your question? Which, uh, instead of Strong's, is there a better book? <laughs> Should I throw away my Strong's book? Don't throw away your Strong's. Just understand where it defines terms. It's showing you how that term was used in the King James Version, which is why King James is always right. It doesn't tell you what the word actually means, just how they used it. So when you go out to the website where it's got Strong's, and down at the bottom it's got a lexicon. Lexicon is where you go for what a word actually means. It tells you its origin, derivation, and how it's used not just in the King James Version. Yeah. So in Jeremiah 5, we're in verse 22, where God said, by an everlasting decree forever, that the, there's a boundary to the sea that God will not permit it to cross. And God says, if I can do that, how can you not fear me? What can I do to you? Scripture says, don't be afraid of the one who can just kill the body, but the one that can kill the body and cast the soul into the lake of fire forever. I don't want to tempt him to find out just what he can do. That's right. Verse 23. Why don't they fear the Lord? Verse 23 answers that question. But this people has a defiant and rebellious heart. The word defiant is the Hebrew word sorer, S-O-R-E-R. Hebrew word 5637. Again, S-O-R-E-R, Hebrew word 5637. And the word rebellious is moreh, Hebrew word 4784. Let's go to Deuteronomy 21.8, see if we can understand more what these words mean. Deuteronomy 21.18. 21.18. Yep, Deuteronomy 21, verse 18. 18. 18. Deuteronomy 21.18. It's right after verse 17. Okay. Jesus, that wasn't helpful. 
If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, here's these same words, who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother. That's what God means by a stubborn and rebellious son. He will not obey those that are put in authority over him. So in the book of Jeremiah chapter 5, God's saying they're stubborn and rebellious because they will not hear and obey my words. But of course they want God's blessing. Psalm chapter 78. Psalm 78 verse 8. We'll start in verse 7 for context so we know exactly what we're talking about. Can I ask you a question? Of course. Well, okay, so stubborn and rebellious people have turned against God, and God has said in his word, I don't even hear your prayers because I know your heart. Right. And people, oh, please pray for so-and-so. Please pray for, you know, all, all these I know all these unsaved people. And so, mm -hmm. What is the way we should, how should we respond, and how should we pray? Or, or, or do we just, I'll just leave it at that and see if you might. I pray for people anyway. Right. That God would meet the need and touch the heart. That they might come to salvation. Okay. Yeah. Strong convic conviction unto repentance towards righteousness and away from unrighteousness. Yep. So, Psalm 78, verse 8, but we're going to start in verse 7 for context, because you like it when I do that. That they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright, and whose spirit was not faithful to God. So the stubborn and rebellious generation did not want to do what was right. It's not that they didn't always do right. They didn't want to do right. And their spirit was not faithful to God because they wandered to whatever idol was around. So if we go back to Jeremiah 5, I didn't finish verse 23. I want to look at those words defiant and rebellious first. So it says, but this people has a defiant and rebellious heart. They have revolted and departed. What does it mean to revolt? God bless you. To what? They've thrown off the authority. They said, we will not let you rule over us. We will not submit to your authority. You can't tell us what to do. And departed. They departed from God. Because they did not want to repent. They still want God's blessing. Verse 24 says, They do not say in their heart, Let us now fear the Lord our God, who gives rain, both the former and the latter, in its season. He reserves for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. 
They want the rain, the form and the latter rain in its season. They want the appointed harvests. But they do not want to fear the Lord our God. But you know what? There's more to this verse than meets the eye. Let's go to Hosea chapter 6, verse 3. The former and the latter rain doesn't just refer to literal rain. It also refers to the first and second coming of the Lord. Where are we going? We're going to Hosea chapter 6. If you read the Gospels, you will see that the chief priest and the leaders they were calling for Messiah's death, it's not that they didn't realize that he was the Messiah. Is that they didn't want him. They got their authority from Rome. They got their wealth and position from Rome. They didn't want the Messiah to come and separate them from Rome. Hosea 6.3 For context, go back to verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord. Return there is to repent. This is Israel after almost 2,000 years of wilderness wanderings coming home. For he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. Meaning in the same book of Deuteronomy that God promised the captivity, he also promised the return and restoration once we repent. After two days, he will revive us. That's 2,000 years. On the third day, that's the day of the Lord, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. That is the rapture, resurrection, and drawing the people into the kingdom. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. We know from chapter 4, that's talking about the Torah, the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. So they're repenting and returning to God's commandments. His going forth, his going forth, not ours, but the Lord's going forth, is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. So Isaiah 6 is saying the Lord's coming in the first and second coming are like the early and latter rains to the earth. When Messiah came the first time, what about those people who did not want to hear? They didn't want Messiah. They rejected him, right? They lost. They died in their sins. We're about to see the second coming. Does the majority of the world say, oh good, let Messiah come. We want him to be king over the whole earth. No, they don't. They say, wow, he may make us stop sinning. We, we don't want that. And Hosea 6 is not the only place that likens Messiah's first and second coming to the early and the latter rains. It's also in Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, verse 23. Be glad then, you children of Zion, prophetic Jerusalem, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former reign faithfully. That is the first coming. Did Messiah die at 3 p.m. as had been prophesied? Did things take place exactly as God said? Was he born in Bethlehem of the Virgin, etc., etc.? Exactly. He's given you the former reign faithfully. 
and it will cause the rain to come down for you. That is the latter rain, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. But there's two calendars. The first coming was in the spring. When is the second coming, in the spring or the fall? Look at verse 24. The threshing floor shall be full of wheat. That's in the fall. That's why there had to be two calendars for the first coming and the second coming to be in the first month, and yet one to be in the spring and one to be in the fall. And the vat shall overflow with new wine, which is a symbol of joy, and oil, which is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. What's going to characterize the kingdom? Another term for the Feast of Tabernacles is a season of our joy. And the Holy Spirit's going to reign. Yeah, I think I'm getting more excited. The Lord's coming soon. Do you know it? That harvest period. He likens the first and second coming and relates it to the harvest period. Go to Leviticus 23. Where there's a verse that seems to be completely out of context. In verses 1 to 21 you read about the Four spring festivals that teaches Messiah's death, burial, resurrection, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Leviticus 23. But then verse 22 isn't talking about the feasts and festivals. It's talking about a harvest period. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap, nor shall you gather any gleanings from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. So in the first four feasts, we have the first fruits. That's the beginning of the harvest. Then chapter 23, verse 22, when you reap the harvest of your land, that's the main harvest. That's Revelation 4.1. That's rapture and resurrection. What's left then? The gleanings which take place in Revelation 20 after Messiah's return and establishment of the kingdom. And the harvest period then after it is verse 23, which teaches the Feast of Trumpets, the rapture and resurrection. When the main harvest is over, it says in verse 22, leave the gleanings. Here's the rapture and resurrection, and the gleanings have not yet been taken. Mm. Isn't that cool? The word of God is awesome. I listen to too many YouTube videos, I guess. But I listened to one this afternoon right before we left that said, could the tribulation period start in September? And it wasn't talking about the feasts and festivals. It said back in 2015, the nations of the world signed up for a treaty called Agenda 2030. Mm -hmm. And that there's a meeting at the United Nations in September of this year, right after the Feast of Trumpets, where they intend to confirm the treaty to get us to 2030's Agenda 
uh, goals in seven years. And he didn't have any idea that the Feast of Trumpets is in September, a day or two before this meeting. But he was saying, hmm, this sure looks like it could be. We'll find out. Anyway, back to Jeremiah. How dare I get off topic like that? Jeremiah chapter 5. I just get all excited. Verse 25. Your iniquities. What's another word for iniquity? Lawlessness. Lawlessness is not just a sin here and there. It's a refusal to repent, a refusal to hear the word of the Lord. Your iniquities have turned these things away. What things? The beautiful crops, the blessings of God that God's been providing year after year. He says, got to bring them to an end. Your iniquities have turned these things away and your sins have withheld good from you. Why aren't you getting the full blessing of God? Because you're living in sin. God says, I just can't keep continuing to bless you that way. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 15 to see the use of the word that's translated here, iniquities. Genesis 15. Verse 16. Genesis chapter 15, verse 16. After telling Avram, because his name hasn't been changed yet, he's going to have a whole host of descendants. They're going to go down into Egypt. They're going to be strangers in a strange land. But that Abraham, or Avram as he's called then, will go to his grave in peace. But verse 16, talking about his descendants that go into Egypt. But in the fourth generation they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Iniquity is lawlessness. The law wasn't given at Mount Sinai until long after this. And yet the commandments were still being broken. And were the Amorites Jews? No. So this tells us that the law of God has always been, and it applies to all people. And trying to tell ourselves, oh no, that was just for Israel. Amorites are not Israel. They never were. And what is sin? Sin is breaking the commandments of God. Sin is lawlessness. 1 John 3, 4. So from Genesis 15, verse 16, we know that the law is for all people and that sin has consequences. And then if we go to Genesis 19, 15. Genesis chapter 19, verse 15. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. But is that word punishment? 
It is our own, which is iniquity. So why did they choose to use the word punishment here? It is the word avon, iniquity, lawlessness. You know where else they did that to us was back in Genesis a little earlier. In chapter 4, verse 13. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. That's not punishment either. I even have a little note by the publishers of my Bible that says that word's supposed to be iniquity. And that is it. So back in chapter 4, Cain says, I broke God's commandments. And I can't bear the thought that I did. How far ahead of the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai did this take place? It's more than 2,000 years, isn't it? Let's go to Leviticus chapter 5. Leviticus chapter 5. Yep, Leviticus. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. Leviticus chapter 5. Verse 17. If a person, you're not there yet. Let me give you a minute. If a person sins and commits any of these things which are forbidden to be done by the commandments of the Lord, though he does not know it, yet he is guilty and shall bear his iniquity. Sin is the breaking of God's commandment. It doesn't take an intentional action. If God said, thou shalt not, and you do, then you are guilty. Isn't it nice that we have a Savior? And then the word sins, let's go to Genesis 18, verse 20. Genesis 18, verse 20, most people are going to go, wait a minute, that's about Sodom and Gomorrah. Were the people of Sodom and Gomorrah Israelites? Nope, except for Lot and his family. And they were kind of pre-Israelites. Verse 20 says, And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very great. Is this before or after Mount Sinai? Before. Are these Jews or non-Jews? Non-Jews. And their actions are still sin. They are still breaking the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. The difference between sin and lawlessness is lawlessness is continuing in sin, refusing to repent. So let us go back to Jeremiah chapter 5. 
in verse 25, their sins have withheld good from them, but when they refuse to repent, then it becomes iniquity, and iniquity have turned these things away. The blessings of God. Come judgment day, what does Messiah say in Matthew 7.23 to those who walk in lawlessness? I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. He's saying that's what he's saying to the children of Israel back here. They sin, they refuse to repent. Judgment's coming. Verse 28. Wait a minute. Let's do 26 first. For among my people are found wicked men. Notice men's in italics. It's just wicked people. What's somebody who's wicked? Yeah. So in Hebrew, biblical Hebrew, there's the word ra, which means bad or evil. Wicked is rasha. It's even worse than bad or evil. These are truly bad people. They lie in wait as one who sets snares. They set a trap. They catch men, meaning they're shedding innocent blood and they're doing it without conscience, without care. Oops, I see. I have a question or comment out there. Let's see on the chat. Well, I repeat the difference between sin and lawlessness. Reply privately. Well, sorry, I've already said it out loud. Yes, sin is to break a commandment of God. Iniquity or lawlessness is to be unrepentant and continue in sin. So sin you could do unintentionally. Iniquity, you know you're doing it. You don't care. And what just happened to my camera? See if we can get it back. I think the storms are. I'm hoping the internet didn't just go down, but it's possible. Well, we still hear you, Wayne. We just can't see you. Okay, then I will keep teaching and we'll hope the picture comes back. Okay. Verse 27. As a cage is full of birds, so their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and grown rich. But... There's a, a picture here. A cage is full of birds. Birds is used in a lot of parables in the New Testament. Do you remember? Let's go look at some. Let's go to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13 verse 4. Give you a chance to find it. Yep. 
Okay. Matthew 13, verse 4. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. So the seed is the gospel message being spread. The birds come and devour it. Who are the birds working for? Are they working for God? No, these are symbolic of the demonic forces of Satan that are trying to keep people from hearing the gospel message. In the same chapter, Matthew 13, we have another illustration in verse 19. Messiah is going to explain the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he receives seed by the wayside. So Messiah says specifically that the bird represented the wicked one. And who is the wicked one? That is Satan. The same chapter, Matthew 13, verses 31 to 32. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. A mustard seed, they say, is the smallest of all seeds. I must tell you, I've not looked at every seed to be sure, but that's what they say. In, in Israel at that time, that was what they knew. There are smaller seeds. Okay. Which indeed is the least of all the seeds. At least that they were planting in Israel at the time. A mustard seed is about the size of a period on this page. Yeah. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree. So that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. It must have been a little bit different than the mustard that we plant. Yeah, probably. So he's saying that the little grain of mustard seed is like the gospel message. It grows and it begins to fill the world, but then the birds come and nest in his branches. Satan brings in false doctrines. It's like the wheat and the tares. Yeah. Okay. First Timothy chapter one. First Timothy chapter one. First Timothy chapter one, we're gonna talk about deceit. Because it said in Jeremiah 5.27, so their houses are full of deceit. First Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 8. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. What's that mean? Use it for the purpose God gave it to us, and that was not as a way of salvation. It was a way for us to learn the ways of righteousness. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate. Because a righteous person obeys the commandments of God. They don't need anything external. Because the law is written in our hearts. For the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. Sounds like he's been to Washington. Yeah, we're going to have to talk about the word gospel, but not yet, because it's coming up. 
Well, let's look at Psalm 109. Psalm 109, verse 2. Psalm 109, verse 2. Psalm 109, verse 2. For the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. So the mouth of the deceitful speaks forth lies. And what do we know from Revelation about the future of all liars? Lake of fire. Let's not go there with them. Revelation 2. The churches receive letters. Revelation 2, verses 1 to 3. Revelation 2, verses 1 to 3. Here's something to remember for tomorrow. Before the ice cream social, that is. To the angel or pastor of the church of Ephesus write. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. We know from Revelation itself that that's Messiah. I know your works, your labor, your patience. And that you cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not. And have found them liars. The deceit was in the mouth of the false teachers. And how were they able to tell that they were false teachers teaching lies? Because that were teaching not what the commandments and statutes of God said. Yeah, their teachings and their lives didn't match the word of God. What should we do when we find a pastor like that? Run. Yes, that's right. Revelation 21, verse 8. Revelation 21, verse 8. Revelation 21, verse 8 says, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Does somebody out there have a question and go to meeting land? That could have just been static on the line because of the storms out there. I'm just grateful that we have electricity and we're able to have service tonight. So let's go back to Jeremiah 5 to verse 28. They have grown fat. They're sleek. Yes, they surpass the deeds of the wicked. That word surpass means to overlook, to not care, to not rebuke, to not teach them to do better, but to tolerate them. Much as in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the church at Corinth was tolerating those who were having improper sexual relations with their father's wives. Were they telling them they need to repent? No, they were tolerating it. They thought it was okay. 
How does God look at it when we accept sin and we say, that's okay, keep going? Makes us guilty. Makes us guilty. That's uh, Romans chapter 1, isn't it? So they do not plead the cause, the cause of the fatherless, yet they prosper in the right of the needy they do not defend. Does God care about the orphans and the widows? Aren't they orphans and widows because God is making them suffer? No. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 32. God has a very warm spot in his heart for the widows and orphans and says we better too. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 15 says, I'm waiting for people to find it. Never be afraid to say, oh, you're going too fast. I know, we should just put a bulletin board on the back of the wall, right? This says you're going too fast. Okay. Deuteronomy 32, 15, but Jeshurun, Jeshurun is Jerusalem. Grew fat and kicked. If you think of Acts chapter 9, when the Apostle Paul was still Saul on his way to Damascus to persecute the believers, and Messiah said, why do you kick against the goad? That's the same kind of kick in here. You grew fat, you grew thick, you're obese. Then he forsook God who made him. What's it mean to forsake God? Turn away, Turn away from his commandments. And scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. How should we respond to God's great blessings? With thankfulness and appreciation. With thankfulness and appreciation. Exactly. Exodus twenty two twenty two. Praise. And praise. Exodus twenty two twenty two. Exodus twenty two twenty two. You shall not want, afflict any widow or fatherless child. Back in those days, how easy would it have been to take advantage of a widow or orphan? To steal away the property that they have, to take what they need to survive on. And God says, you shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If, they, if you afflict them in any way and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. I mean, is that getting to the point or not? Would you like your wives and children to be... Nope. Deuteronomy 10.18. Deuteronomy 10.18. Oops, I have some chats out here. Let's see. Yeah, voice, but no picture. Okay. I could try restarting the program, but I think we'll just go with the voice for a little while in case it didn't come back up. 
Deuteronomy 10, verse 18. Did we read it? We did not. He administers, he being the Lord our God, administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, you love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So here's another. God loves them, so you got to love them too. Does that mean to have warm, fuzzy feelings and put your arms around and give them a big hug? Or does it mean to make sure they're eaten and clothed and warm? Deuteronomy 24, starting in verse 17. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 17 to 21. You shall not pervert justice to the stranger or the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore I command you to do this thing. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. Do you know what that means when you beat your olive trees? Exactly. You put sheets under the olive tree, you bang the limbs with a stick, and the ripe olives fall down. And those that are left up there, God says, you leave them there. Verse 21, when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. You can go harvest your grapes, but those that are not ripe, you don't go back and get them. Verse 22, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, therefore I command you to do this thing. What's that mean? You shall remember that you were a slave, therefore I can't do this thing. What did God do for the children of Israel? Freedom. Freedom. Brought them into the land. Gave them all this good stuff. Good stuff. They did it with great power. Yep. And let's end this topic in the book of James chapter 1. Just to show that it has not changed. James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. There's something else I want you to look at in verse 27. There are many verses that will say the Lord our God and Yeshua the Messiah. People say, look, those are two separate individuals. This says pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. Are God and the Father two separate individuals? Or are they just using two descriptions of God to help us clearly understand.
Hmm. Back to Jeremiah chapter 5. I'm going to take one more shot at the camera. Hmm. All right, let's keep going. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 29. After reciting this great list of sins and iniquities, God says, Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? I mean, what happens if God does not judge them? He'll become a liar. He'll become a liar. Will they repent? Will they just on their own think, Hey, you know what? We should just repent and turn back to God. Or does God bring judgment for the purpose of bringing people to repentance? God doesn't punish just because he likes to punish people. Scripture says God doesn't enjoy the death of even an unrighteous person. In 2 Peter 3 it says God wants all to come to repentance. But sometimes God must give them a little incentive to repent, shall we say. And that's the point of verse 29. What if I don't punish them? Are they just going to continue to get worse and worse and worse? So verse 30 says, An astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land. What's he mean astonishing? Is it sin beyond belief? Can you say America in 2023? Oh my goodness, are we not astonishing in the sins we're committing? Verse 31, the prophets prophesy falsely. Prophets are there to call people to repentance, to call them away from sin and back to God. And yet they're telling the people they don't need to repent. You want to see my blood pressure go up? Show me another video of a preacher saying that repentance is works. God doesn't want you to repent. God wants you to continue in your sin. If you don't continue in your sin, you have no faith. And my blood pressure just comes up until my eyeballs are ready to pop out. That was the words of the false prophets of old. Is that you don't need to repent. God will bless you anyway. And the priests rule by their own power. And my people love to have it so. But what will you do in the end? 2 Timothy chapter 4. Why is he still calling his people? I just don't get that because they're sure not acting like No, but they promise to be. They're still continuing to say they are. Remember Mark 7 and Matthew 15, these people honor me with their lips. They still claim to be God's children. Remember Luke chapter 6, verse 46, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I say? Matthew chapter 7, 
still doing it today, aren't yeah. they? Yeah, at the time of the end, they're going to say, Lord, Lord, have we not done this in your name and done that in your name? He's going to say, I never knew you. The second Timothy 4. Well, he calls them his people because he is willing to accept a truly repentant heart up until the very end when they no longer do And so he still claims that. Yeah. And of course, they're going to come to a point very shortly where he calls them low on me, not my people. So he hasn't totally given up yet. He's still calling him to repent. And he's going to have Jeremiah call him again to repent over and over again, year after year, until he finally says, Lo, on me, you're not to my people. 2 Timothy 4. He told Jeremiah that at his very early age, that it was going to go on his whole lifetime, didn't he? Yeah. And was God right? God got another one right. Second Timothy chapter 4, after telling us that every word that comes out of the mouth of God is good for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, Paul says to Timothy, I charge you, therefore, to charge you. Does that mean I kind of, sort of hope you will? Give you this responsibility. It's a strong command of responsibility. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Yeshua the Messiah, who will judge the living and the dead. Notice, before God and the Lord Yeshua the Messiah, but the who is singular. Who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. What word? Oh, I know. It's love. No, preach the word of God. Be ready in season and out of season. What's that mean? It says, don't just have a prepared lesson for Friday night. If somebody comes up on the street and asks a question, give them an answer. Convince, rebuke, exhort. But then, darn it, he leaves out the two before. He says, with all long-suffering and teaching. Teaching what? Matthew 28, 18. All things whatsoever I have commanded you. You can't hit people with two before us. That doesn't solve anything. So convince, rebuke, exhort with long, long suffering and teaching for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth. What's the truth? Torah, Psalm 119, verse 142. Not today, but one of these days we're going to take a look at the scripture actually says the Torah is truth, the word of God is truth, the Holy Spirit is truth, and Messiah is truth. If all four are truth, can they be inconsistent with one another? No. No. And be turned aside to fables. Hasn't been long since I heard a very high-ranking minister say that abortion is a God-given right. 
Where is that in Scripture? Nowhere. Nowhere. <clears throat> scripture says if you injure a pregnant woman yep. and she gives birth to the child and it suffers harm, the penalty is nephesh for nephesh, which means soul for soul, which means that unborn baby had a soul. Hmm. I'm sorry, I digress. Back to Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 31. The prophets prophesy falsely. Why would they do that? Are they true prophets? No. They claim to be giving the word of God, but what are they giving the people? What keeps them in power? What keeps them in power more than that? Go to the book of Micah. They're prophesying for what? Micah 3.11 Her heads judge for a bribe, her priests teach for pay, and her prophets divine for money. If I'm going to be a prophet for money, that means I'm going to tell you what? Whatever you want to hear. Whatever you want to hear, as long as you're willing to pay for it. So what is my motivation? Is it to lead people to God? No. Is it to get people to quit their sins? No. It's to give them permission to do whatever they want to do. One of the things that Martin Luther really objected to, he never intended to start a new religion. He was a Catholic monk and teacher in the seminary. But he really had a problem with indulgences. Indulgences were you go to the priest before you commit the sin and pay them money and they give you permission to commit the sin and God won't hold it against you. And, and he said, that, that's too much. Give me a book of ten. Yeah. I'm sorry. I digress, but let's end with verse 31. Isn't that, isn't that similar to what some people today say, well, if I, I've heard them say this, if I go to church and I give them a good offering, or I go out in the world out there and I feed the hungry, that, you know, it's a balance. If, you know, if the good side overbalances the bad side, I'm good to go. Yeah, and where's that in the Bible? It's not. So verse 31 as we end tonight. The prophets prophesy falsely because their motivation is not to lead people to God, is to put gold in their pockets. And the priests rule by their own power, meaning not as directed by God, but doing what they want to do. And they're doing these things because the people want it that way. And his question of what will you do in the end means... Come judgment day, what are you going to say? What are you looking forward to? How do you stand before the Lord and say, yeah, okay, I led your people straight to the lake of fire, but it made me rich. We all had a good time. Yeah. We all have to remember, as Ecclesiastes reminded us, judgment day is coming, and everything we do will be brought into judgment. 
Well, that's it for tonight. We're out of time. We'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 1.